Welcome to the Book Last podcast, our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy, showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world, being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses and a special guest publisher. This conversation is being recorded over the internet during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm interviewing Anne Meadows, Editorial Director of Granta Books, and Jamie Lee Searle, the co-founder of the Emerging Translators Network. We will be discussing Anna Kim's extraordinary novel, The Great Homecoming, which is set in Korea and Japan in the late 50s and early 60s. It is the complex and very moving story of two childhood friends and the woman they both love, set against the turmoil of the Korean War, mass killings, Russian and American politicking, and the Cold War. So Anne, good afternoon. You have been at Granta for nine years. How have the books acquired over that period reflected the changes in both the publishing industry and the world around us? Uh, good afternoon, Georgia. Thank you for having me. Um, that's a really interesting question. I think the most notable change in my time in publishing, which is coming up to 10 years now, has been uh, an increased interest in works in translation. Um, when I first started there were a small number of houses publishing work in translation. Um, there was Granter and Portobello Books, my company, and then um, Harville Sacker and Maclehose Press. But since then, uh, the field has broadened significantly. So And Other Stories has started, um, Fitzcarraldo editions. And these small presses have really been championing work in translation. And I think the whole arena as a consequence has shifted and with the set the success of um Elena Ferrante particularly uh there's a new appetite I think for work in translation and it's being published with a much more commercial flair so it's no longer the kind of um the little sister of the publishing world there's there's great work being put out into the English market but it's also being bought in large numbers and that's been really exciting to see. So literary translation has an important role to play in our changing world. Uh, I mean, how, how, what kind of role does it do, do you feel it has and how does it help us also to improve empathy and understanding of each other? Hmm, I think, uh, I mean, translation is the gift of hearing from other cultures and other voices that you might not otherwise have access to. And particularly actually with nonfiction, we've seen a spate of nonfiction successes. I'm thinking of uh, Sapiens, Yoanaval Harari, and um, Rutger Bergman's Utopia for Realists. We've had nonfiction books, which are very critical of Anglo, Anglo modes of thought and which have come from different traditions. So I think, I'm not sure about improving empathy, but certainly in terms of broadening our understanding of other places, work in translation, fiction and non-fiction can be a real boon. So which writers are you personally most proud of first publishing and introducing to English language readers? Five five writers that come to mind? Oh, gosh. Uh... <laughs> you're, you're a bit of a champion yourself. So, of course, we could probably just have a huge hour discussing all of your list, but uh, we haven't got that kind of time. I, I hope to be. Um, I'd say my company, Granter, has had great success this past year and a half with um, the Japanese language novelist Sayaka Murata, who uh, I think one of her first ever translations appeared in Granter magazine. 
And then we published her novel, Convenient Stall Woman, and it was her first English language publication. And it's been this sort of huge success. We've sold upwards of 120,000 copies now. Um, and that's been really phenomenal to see. She has a very distinct sensibility. And a lot of the writers that uh, I've been the first to publish in the UK, um, Saka Murata, Hiromi Kawakami, um, a wonderful Argentine writer called Mariana Enriquez, they all feel as though they are sort of peerless in the English language, like there's no one else quite like them, and that's very exciting. Uh, I also had the privilege of publishing last year a Turkish writer called Ahmet Eltan, who had had his fiction published in English before, but this was his memoir of his time in prison. Uh, and he's still in prison. He's um, been in prison by Erdogan for speaking out against the Turkish regime. And that was an enormous privilege to be able to champion a writer who has written and done so much for freedom of speech and freedom of thought, and to see his work um, finding English language readers was really, really powerful. Um, so it's been, I mean, it's it's been an enormous, my job is an enormous privilege. Um, and working with with Jamie Lee Searle on um, Anna Kim as well, and the sort of beautiful uh, literature that you can find from, from other countries and other places, it's been a real joy. Mm. Yes, so The Great Homecoming by Anna Kim is a magnificent, harrowing novel. Not only do we get a very comprehensive picture of what lies behind the news headlines and what happens when politics fails people, but the novel also addresses the divisive subjects of immigration. How does it represent the values and vision that underpin the Granta list? Oh, that's a good question. I think first and foremost, by being great literature, and that's what we look for at Granta, and that's what has driven the translation list from Joseph Roth to Herta Muller to Han Kang and Yoko Tawada, we're, we're first and foremost literary publishers. So the language, um, as, as Jamie translates it, is beautiful, and that's very important to us. And then it, it, is a, it is a political novel. It's a novel that has a lot to say about migration and displacement and, um, as you say, the kind of complex politics of North and South Korea during the time and American interference. Uh, so I like to think it's it's both a literary novel and a political novel, and those are two things we feel very strongly about. Mm. Well, exactly, because in these darkening days, as tensions between America and the Far East are rising, this gem of a novel has never been more relevant. Yet, the most important political novels are never really about politics with a capital P, per se. So in what way is this the case with regards to The Great Homecoming? I think The Great Homecoming is is about loss. It's about loss and it's about um, nostalgia. And it, it presents these three young people um, led by the, the main character, Yinho, who um, have, had their, have had their youth stolen from them by war and who find themselves kind of in exile from their country, both within it and then literally. And it's about that loss of, um, of hope and nationhood and about being buffeted by the forces of history, which is not a common experience um, anymore in the West or hadn't been, I think, until the past few months when I think we've all felt overtaken by history and buffeted by history. And that sense of not having control in your life, I think, is something that Anna Kim writes very beautifully with these characters, that whichever way they turn, it feels like they're facing into a storm and there's no shelter and there's no reprieve from it. 
And is beautiful writing, though, enough to sell a book these days? I mean, what else? Of course, marketing, does it all come down to marketing, really, over and beyond the actual storytelling and the and the writer? Well, it's, it's a particularly funny time for publishing. Um, the bookstores, obviously, are, are mostly closed at the moment, and we're very dependent on online orders. I think... Um, it, it doesn't only come down to marketing. I mean, we still do a lot with publicity and publicity campaigns and seeking out reviewers and um, talking to bookshops directly and sort of trying to enlist booksellers in the hope that they will support a title. Um, but marketing certainly does play a much larger part again than it did when, when I first started. And we're much more concerned with online algorithms and uh keywords and search terms and things like that you have to be digitally savvy Mm. uh, in this new age yeah George Steiner the Franco-American literary critic essayist philosopher novelist and educator who wrote extensively about the relationship between language literature and society and the impact of the holocaust famously said a study of translation is a study of language is all communication translation in the end that's a very good question. I mean, I wouldn't want to disagree with George Steiner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? Good, have a hot debate. It's you know, a big quote to take on. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, from my perspective, you know, a lot of what I do is working with enormously talented mm. translators. And so although I, I agree that, you know, all, all language is an act of translation in the sense that we have to work to understand each other and that we come from individual words have specific resonances for each person. Uh, and there's that sort of lovely Milan Kundra quote about a cemetery meaning a different thing to you and a different thing to me. Mm, yes. But from my perspective, the translators I work with are undertaking a very particular type of labor, an artistic labor. Mm. And it's not the same as just um, the kind of everyday interpretation that we all do. It involves a great facility for stepping into someone else's skin and imagining the the landscape of their of their language and trying to inhabit it and then trying to bring it into a language which may not be entirely hospitable to it, which is one of the interesting things that languages don't always flow easily into each other. So I think... Um, I think we we don't give enough credit to translators mm. if we just assume that all language is, is translation. I think translation is by itself a particular art and deserves that recognition. Mm. So, Jamie, how did you become a translator and which languages do you translate from? Hi, Georgia. Thank Hi, you for the invitation. Jamie. So I think for me it was a combination of my interests kind of organically leading me towards it um, in terms of I always loved reading, storytelling and then from a certain age as well learning languages, discovering other cultures um, and also there was a point I reached where I actually realised it was possible. I was thinking back I think maybe the seed was sown. Um, I worked in a bookshop when I was younger probably from the age of 16 or 17 I think I remember shelving some books and there were a couple, uh, one of them was Embers by Sandor Marai. And I remember looking in the title pages and seeing uh, translated by Carol Brown Janeway in there. And I must have registered it. And then later on, I also saw her name in the translation of The Reader by Ben Hutch Link. 
And I think that's when I first realised this is actually a, a job that a person could do. Um, and it did take, a number, well, I think maybe another seven or eight years before I actually started doing it. But I think, yeah, that was the initial stage. And luckily, I started to move into it at a time when the industry had numerous initiatives that were supporting it as a career path. So the British Centre for Literary Translation had started doing summer school. The Translators Association were also helpful in a number of ways. So I think it was just a combination of interests and being there at a, a good time in the industry. And yeah, and that's the point when I guess I started to proactively build it as a career once I realised that. And so can you tell us a bit about uh, the Emerging Translators Network? Yeah, um, so the Emerging Translators Network was founded in 2011 um, by myself and two of my colleagues, Rosalind Harvey and Anna Holmwood. Um, At the time, we realised there was kind of an information gap, really, for emerging early career translators, because the Translators Association in the UK which gives invaluable advice and support to translators. Um, At the time, you were only eligible to join once you'd done your, or once you have a contract for the first book length translation. But the path till you get to that point can be quite long. And there's a, a number of questions that people have very early on. And we just felt that there needed to be kind of a place or a forum Um, for that stage so we created it originally as an online google group um, and we were having uh, monthly meetings in London and over time that grew um, so there were meetings regionally around the country also big events in London and I think now there are over 1200 members and I think one of the greatest things about it is the openness of the members in sharing resources and information And I think people feel comfortable asking questions that they might not in a more formal setting like the London Book Fair and so on. And it's just really, I think it's been very empowering in terms of the strength of the community and of having kind of growing respect for what we do and also then demanding that of others. So I think it's been really helpful in that sense. And it's just really down to the members really um, that have made it such a success. So and so, how does translation unite people? I mean, perhaps this is what you've just said. How you've just described wonderfully how it unites people professionally, but also in terms of in other ways, in terms of the books getting out there. Like Anne mentioned, it's bringing books to readers who might not otherwise be able to access them. You know, kind of providing a path into new worlds, new perspectives, and I think that's one of the incredible things about international literature that it somehow simultaneously makes us aware of our differences and our similarities. And there's something, you know, about that that I think is very uniting. And also at the moment, um, it's uniting us in the only way possible. I mean, we don't have any choice at the moment but to root down where we are. Yeah. But literature from other lands is still enabling us to kind of travel in our minds. So Mm -hmm. there are just so many different layers of how it makes it possible for us. So, so, but you translate from German, is that the main language you translate from or are there other languages you translate from? Um, so German's always been the long-term relationship mm-hmm. for me in terms of languages. Um, I've been studying it now for over 25 years and I always phrase it like that because it is, you know, a lifelong study when you're 
working with or using another language because you're mm. continually learning about it. Um, there were, there's always been other languages that I've learned for varying lengths of time. Um, I kind of, I did French and Dutch and Italian for a while. I kind of flirted with Bulgarian and Russian. Um, <laughs> I see you're a real I, linguist. Wow. I did Spanish for a while and I, um, I stayed in Argentina for a few months learning mm. Spanish. But German was the one that has really stayed with me all the time until kind of relatively recently in comparison, I also started translating from Portuguese mm -hmm. because um, unexpectedly I ended up moving to Brazil for almost five years after my stint in Argentina. And, and then being in that culture for such a, you know, quite a long period of time and being immersed in the language and the surroundings Portuguese now has become to me, I'd say, almost as familiar as the German, despite it being kind of a fourth of the time, just because of the intensity of my immersion over there. So now it's German and, and Portuguese that I work mm. with. So Anna Kim, she is Korean and she writes in German. I mean, first of all, have you met her? Have you, I mean, t can you tell us a bit about her and how you ended up translating The Great Homecoming and also why you think it was important for her to write this book? Yeah, so Anna, uh, she and I, we first met probably around 10 years ago at the London Book Fair. And at that point, I had recently translated a short piece that she wrote after she was a writer in residence in London. And I think uh, we, we, I probably kept an eye on her work, but we didn't have... Again. And she was living in Germany. I mean, that's so she's Korean, but living in Germany and writes in German. So she was um, she was born in in South Korea, mm -hmm. uh, but her family emigrated to Austria via oh, Germany when okay. she was very young. So for her, um, I mean, I think I'm right in saying that German's always the language that she's felt more comfortable mm. in in terms yeah. of speaking, in terms of writing, and everything. So yeah, so she was living in Austria. I read The Great Homecoming because her publisher, Suerkamp, who I work for quite frequently in Germany, uh, they asked me to do the sample translation for, for their promotion, for their rights, kind of rights promotion purposes. Mm -hmm. And so I did the sample. I just really fell for the book, kind of read on. I just had this gut feeling that it would be right for, for Granter. And just coincidentally, or, you know, as fate would have it, I, I got the details. I think I was looking for the contact details for Anne and because we hadn't been in touch at that point. And in the very couple of days that I was looking for her email address, she happened to reach out to me on Facebook with a message asking if I could contact her. And I wrote back and said, is this about this book because I just had this feeling and it did it was about that and I, I think and was it because you'd read the sample was that why I think uh so we just happened to both get in touch with each other about the same thing at the same time and then we we met up in London had a coffee and and talked for a long time about the book and I think a few weeks later she commissioned me to do the translation which I was really delighted about but in terms of the author in yeah. terms of Anna I was in touch with her, I think, with a couple of questions when I did the sample. And then obviously, once I got the commission, um, I told her the news and she was very pleased. Mm -hmm. But we um, she was much more involved um, a little bit later on because we actually went on a residency together in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. There's a program there called Writers Oh My, mm -hmm. which is really mm -hmm. amazing. They um, have a translation lab there where they have four 
writer translator pairs um and you go there and for a period of 10 days you you work on the translation um with the author there to ask questions of and that just to me was just so invaluable because you often if you do have contact with an author during a translation it's usually by email at the best it might be meeting for coffee but to have that that kind of abundance of time and we you know the face-to-face interaction we were going for walks she was able to sketch out things for me in terms mm. of Korean architecture and right these little details that you might not prioritize mm, but if you weren't actually there yeah, yeah. so that was really helpful and so I'm very grateful to her for all of her input and everything that she helped with. Mm-hmm. Yes, because actually, so the narrator of The Great Homecoming is Korean by birth and adopted by a German couple. And she returns mm-hmm. to Seoul looking for her Korean nanny and biological parents and visits 78-year-old Yunho Kang in the American missionary quarter of Seoul. And he reminisces about his childhood friend Johnny, a Yunmi or Eve Moon, a woman of many facets, who, who? I mean, I, I rather took to her. She's there's a sort of touch of the Becky Sharp to her on one level. There's something rather tragic about her. Of course, she was also known as the Yankee whore because she slept with the occupying Americans. To what extent are the central characters based on both the author's own experiences and those of her original family or friends or blend of real and fiction? But to what extent are the real real? If you see what I mean. Yeah, I did um, extensive research. I mean, it's it's clear to anyone who reads the book, there's obviously such um kind of a wealth of historical detail yes, oh, there. The historical side's amazing, yes. Um, and I know that she um, and I know that she um obviously talked to her family a fair amount when she was researching because I, I remember her mentioning a couple of things about asking, you know, her parents' generation questions. When it comes to how much the characters kind of more sp- specific trajectories are based on those kind of her family or their experiences that's not something that she and I really discussed I Mm. guess because I felt it wasn't I didn't really need to know that for the purposes of the translation so it wasn't something I I really asked there was just so much else that I needed to ask really that that wasn't something we ever really went into the conflict-ridden world she depicts shifts from being is actually shifting from being an agrarian to an industrial economy, with Koreans being caught in an ideological tug of war between Russia, China, Japan, and America, and it's barely imaginable for us, who, us Westerners, who've only ever lived in a democracy. Yet somehow it's 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 very universal and absolutely. I was completely caught up in it and. There is, I mean, there is something very universal about it. And so how, how, does, how is that? Can you pin that down? They really were caught, like you said, in this ideological tug of oh, war. Terrible. Yeah. And I think what I hadn't previously realised was it wasn't just, well, you know, just a sense of adapting from one ideology to another, which would be huge anyway. But the fact that they had to do it again and again, mm. um, that sense of the ground just constantly shifting and if you having to adapt to survive Anna she she makes the struggles very tangible for the reader by making them personal I mean yeah. Yunho's character he's so well drawn yes and the reader just really feels all these layers of displacement he goes through so geographically politically personally 
terms of his family, friends, the love he has for Eve. And I think that that sense of constant shifting really brings home this sense of instability. So the reader's really drawn into that, really feels it. Yes, and the desperation, which leads, of course, to desperate acts. But I do not, I will not drop a plot spoiling clangor in the middle of this because listeners please go and buy this book instantly (laughs) Um, there is a story behind every decision to migrate how is this reflected in the great homecoming we can give a little bit of a tease with regards to perhaps the second part of the book (laughs) Um, yeah so there really is um, and there's always so many factors involved Um, I mean some some people well some characters in the book some people in general in real life don't have a choice when it comes to migration Mm. even if they do have a choice i think it's always still complicated and even if it doesn't feel like it at the time it can become so later and the characters in this novel i mean they're driven to to migrate by external and internal factors some Mm. of them it's for safety and survival others the hope of a better life or like the the narrator like you said at Hannah it's to find out about the heritage I think one of the things I loved about the novel from the beginning was um, it's the way it meditates on on home and identity and what they mean Mm. and about how you know the notion of home it's so difficult to define but at the same time it's so important to us and so influential Mm. And I think I don't I think it's probably not a coincidence that I happened to find my way to this novel at a time when I had been living overseas for several years as well. And home and belonging are topics that that fascinate me in general. And kind of thinking back when I was kind of looking back through trying to find um, which passage I wanted to read, it just struck me there were just so many more motivations of migration in here than than I was even realizing at the time because I think when you're working on a translation it's almost like you're looking at all the individual leaves of a forest in a way Mm. and it's only later once you can step back and just see the bigger picture again. Mm. What kind of research did you online libraries talking to people I mean because one can tell it's a very very layered extraordinary novel and it's very cleverly done weaving in the history because you don't feel you're being lectured to in any way at all so it's very cleverly done but there's a lot went into it so so in terms of research how much time and what and where yeah um so uh, a great deal of research i would say <laughs> yeah. um i mean translating from german predominantly uh, most of the novels i mean Apart from those novels I've worked on before, have usually played out in a either German, Austrian, or Swiss setting. So this project was completely new territory for me um, in terms of you know focusing on history and culture that I previously had very little knowledge of. So right from the beginning, um, I started off with quite general research. I think I had you know a beginner's guide to the Korean War and things <laughs> like that, and then I generally became more specific as I went Mm. on so uh, reading articles relating to specific elements I was a phase where I was listening to Billie Holiday albums on repeat yeah it was um I mean I did it partly for research but partly just to get into that atmosphere and Mm. then I found that 
you know, once I was working on the edits, I had to keep listening to that particular <laughs> Solitude album. And I, I had to, when I did the final edit, it had to time in right with the song I was playing. I became quite hooked <laughs> with it. Uh, I think yeah, a lot of the research I did was online because most of the work, most of the period when I was working on it, I was living in Brazil. So I, I wouldn't have had access to the physical libraries mm. that might have been helpful. So mm. a lot of the research was online. I think one thing that helped me was that even though this context was Korean rather than German, there was correlation in terms of a divided country, ah, Cold yes. War era. Yes, indeed. That period of German history has always fascinated me. So that that definitely helped. Mm-hmm. I think when I when I was translating this, I it almost felt to me like there was this kind of very densely woven fabric that I needed to unravel in order to reweave it in another form. And there were just so many threads that the process took so much time and patience. And every time I felt like, oh, but, you know, maybe every time I'd done a particular edit and I felt like I'd grasped certain aspects, I would then stumble across another thread that didn't quite work. And in the process of trying to discover where that came from, I would be led somewhere else and then find you know another element to it Mm. so it was it was I think well it definitely was the most challenging project I've ever worked on Mm. and it really Mm. pushed me further than I thought Mm. I could go but it helped me grow as a translator and that's you know something I'm very grateful for certainly so because the events happened nearly half a century ago but they are it still is all somehow extremely relevant to our world today how in your view is 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 that so yeah so like you said it does it does feel very relevant and i think that because over recent years mass migration has increased so much and that means that along with it so have questions of identity and belonging and what home mm. means mm. and it's also very much about it's it's very much about the impact of the political on the individual, how people's lives can be just torn apart and wrenched around. And we're living through times of very intense change, you know, in the, in yeah. the last couple of decades in general, in the last couple of months even. And they're very different to 20th century conflicts, but there's still, still so much impact, still so much um, influence on the life of the individual. Mm. And of course, you know, the division here um, with the Korean Peninsula, I mean, it's still still existent and there's still great international tension when it comes to that part of the world. So that is still very relevant. And I think there's a real unique perspective in this novel, because although there has been, a, you know, increased interest in translations from Korean over recent years, and, the, and there's a lot of work that's gotten a lot of attention recently, Anna's perspective as someone born in Korea but who migrated to Europe at a young age and then is seeing it through this very unique perspective but Mm. with that insight that she has from her heritage as well um, I think that's really interesting there that perspective she has yeah no now what are you working on next I am just in the process of finishing off the edits of um, a really beautiful Swiss novella mm-hmm. for Harville Secker, um, and that's called Twelve Nights by the writer Ursfies. And all going well, that's going to be published this Christmas. And I'm also working on the draft of an Austrian novella, which I um, 
happily received a Penheim grant for. Um, so that is yet to find a home with an English language publisher, oh. but I'm hoping that once I've got more of that done, that, um, that I may hopefully be able to place it with someone. <laughs> and also just keeping my eye out for Brazilian Portuguese projects because uh-huh. I'd really okay. do something on that front as well. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up, could you read us a brief passage that exemplifies the essence of Anna Kim's writing and her voice and the, and the story? I remember the song drifting out through the door, the soft howl of the guitar, the drums following the rhythm in a way that seemed tentative, but was in actual fact confident, nonchalant even. Yet it wasn't these sounds that filled the space, but the heavy late summer air, the heat of the afternoon, And even though the corridor I was making my way along had no windows, the sun found its way in regardless, seeping between the cracks in the doors and dividing the floor into sections, an almost black one followed by a golden brown one. My short journey accompanied by distant music, punctuated here and there by the noises in the building, the clatter of pots and pans, the clack of a blade against a wooden board, the murmurs of the landlady who had eyed me sullenly. Finding his door ajar, I pushed it open. Johnny and Eve were dancing in an embrace, cheek to cheek, their eyes closed, while Sleepwalk played on the gramophone, sung by the brothers Santo and Johnny, the latter my friend's namesake. Back then, I was convinced that nothing could separate them, Johnny and Eve, Eve and Johnny. They moved on that small spot between the bed and the desk, caught in a perfect moment. I watched them for far too long. I sat on the floor outside Johnny's room. I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know anyone in Seoul besides him. As I waited, the scent of freshly boiled rice rose up from the kitchen on the floor below. The aroma of crushed garlic, diced chili peppers and roasted fish. A clink of crockery, Then the landlady scurried into the living room with a tray. I heard her husband's voice. What had taken her so long? She didn't answer. Had the student paid yet, he asked. She hadn't had the chance to speak to him yet, she said. He had a visitor. A visitor, I heard. Who? A young woman, she said. Or maybe not. What's that supposed to mean, he asked. Don't speak in riddles. It was Eve Moon, she answered. Eve Moon, he questioned, his voice becoming louder. Eve Moon? Yes, she whispered. Unbelievable, he thundered. This wasn't a brothel. What was he thinking, taking that whore up to his room? Quiet down, his wife interrupted him. The whole building can hear you. And she closed the door. Only at this moment did I notice that Eve had stepped out into the hallway alongside me. I couldn't tell how long she had been listening, for her expression revealed nothing. Her face was rigid, a mask. Yunmi Moon, or as she called herself, Eve Moon. Curled hair, freckles whitewashed with face powder, lips painted red. To me, her beauty was too calculated. Later, much later, once Johnny was already on his way to North Korea, I learned to differentiate between real Eve and unreal Eve. She drifted over to the stairs and paused for a few seconds as though wanting to make sure her exit would go unnoticed. Me, she ignored. She slipped out of her shoes, tucked them beneath one arm and padded down the steps to the ground floor, opening the front door only slightly. 
She didn't need much space to slip outside. I knocked on Johnny's door. He opened it, a cigarette in the corner of his mouth, a beret on his head, his hair glistening with pomade. He looked sleepy. When he recognised me, he laughed and hugged me again and again. Yun Ho, he cried. Yun Ho, what a surprise. What are you doing here? Come in. Come in at once. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Great Homecoming is published by Granter Books and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy it from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. To find out more about Granter Books, visit their website granter.com forward slash books and their Twitter feed is at Granter Books. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Book Blast Diary or find us on Twitter at Book Blast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, translator Jamie Lee Searle and publisher Anne Meadows for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of The Book Blast Podcast. <laughs>